Sunshine Republic podcast, where we explore all things Florida with a focus on activities that benefit both the mind and the body. Today, we'll be engaging into part three of the Southern Mo- of the Guide to the Southernmost State. Uh, it is a uh, a document that was generated by the Civilian Conservation Corps uh, in 1929. Uh, many states in the Union, uh, actually all 50, have uh, guidebooks written about them uh, back from back then. And uh, without further ado, let's jump in to where we left off with part two. So part three begins for us today with the second excursion of a visitor to Florida. His second excursion into Florida is somewhat different. On his first trip, unconsciously or deliberately, he has selected a spot where he thought later he might want to live and play. And when he comes again, he usually returns to that chosen place for a season. Ultimately, in many cases, he buys or builds a home there and becomes, by slow degrees, a citizen and a critic. The evolution of a tourist into a permanent resident consists of a struggle to harmonize misconceptions and preconceptions of Florida with reality. An initial diversion is to mail northward snapshots of himself reclining under a coconut palm or a beach umbrella with the hope that they will be delivered in the midst of a blizzard. At the same time, the tourist checks weather reports from the north, and if his home community is having a mild winter, he feels that his Florida trip has been, in part, a swindle. Nothing short of ten-foot snowdrifts and burst water pipes at home can make his stay in the Southland happy and complete. On the other hand, he is firmly convinced that with his departure in the spring, the state folds up and the inhabitants sizzle under a pitiless sun until he gets back. Official weather reports and Chamber of Commerce protests to the contrary. Eventually, he takes a chance on a Florida summer and makes the discovery that the average summer temperatures in Florida are lower than than in the north. He tries to tell about it at home, and for his pains, he receives a round of Bronx cheers. He is now in the agonies of transition, suspected by friends and shunned by strangers. His visits to Florida thereafter shift the visits back home, and these latter become less frequent, but back home has left an indelible imprint, which he proposes to stamp on Florida. An expansive mood is one of the most familiar and sometimes costly first responses to a Florida winter sun. The person noted for taciturnity in his home community often becomes loquacious, determined that those about him shall know that he is a man of substance. This frequently makes him an easy prey to ancient confidence games, sometimes leads to unpremeditated matrimony, and almost inevitably results in the acquisition of superfluous building lots. 
already something of a solipsist, he becomes an incurable nonconformist, vigorously defending his adopted state and indignantly decrying it by turns. He refuses the tradition that life in the South is a lackadaisical existence adapted to an enervating climate. He comes here to play and to relax, but at the slightest provocation he resumes his business or profession, if for no other reason than to demonstrate that the sound economic practices of his home state will pull Florida out of the doldrums he perceives it to be in. If he opens a shop, the back-home instinct is likely to reassert itself in choosing a name, so that Florida abounds in Michigan groceries, Maryland restaurants, Ohio dry cleaners, Indiana laundries, and New York shoe shops. Along with business and professional theories, the northerner brings to Florida a great deal of his local architectural tradition. This assures a structural variant of the repetitious designs of filling stations at the four corners of all the crossroad villages and of chain stores along the main streets in the larger towns. While Florida's tourist population is drawn to the state largely by the prospect of play and recreation in a beneficent climate, the distribution of its population is influenced to a great extent by personal inclination. The newcomer usually gravitates to, to the locality where his individual preferences can best be realized, and in so doing, he helps identify these preferences with his adopted community. This tends to emphasize the strikingly diverse characteristics of Florida cities. For example, there is the commercial metropolis of Jacksonville, with its converging railroads and northern bustle, and close by, antique St. Augustine, with its historical background and buildings and its horse-drawn sightseeing conveyances. St. Petersburg, with its club-like foregathering of elderly folk, where fire and police lines are sometimes needed to handle the throngs of Sunday morning worshippers. And Miami, where employees and public establishments are fingerprinted as a police precaution to safeguard the crowds that fill its hotels, racetracks, and nightclubs. Regardless of individual circumstance and preference, one desire seems to be common to all, the desire to improve Florida. But man's subduing efforts seldom extend much beyond the cities or penetrate very far from the highways. And if those efforts were relaxed for a generation, much of Florida would become primeval territory again. In combating nature and in trying to reconcile divergent ideas, the citizen performs a public service. And if the climate, as advertised, adds 10 years to his life, the dispensation is utilized to the advantage of the state. Next up, natural settings and conservation. Florida is bound on the north by Georgia and Alabama, on all other sides by the salt waters of the Atlantic Ocean, the Straits of Florida, and the Gulf of Mexico, except for about 50 miles on the west, where the Perdido River forms a boundary between this state 
and Lower Alabama. The state's tidal shoreline, including the 10,000 islands off of the west coast, and old bays, estuaries, and other tidal reaches, extends 3,751 statute miles from the northern boundary on the Atlantic to the western boundary on the Gulf. Florida's area of 58,666 square miles, of which 3,805 are below the water surface, is more than large enough to contain Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. Jacksonville, in northeast Florida, is in the same latitude as Cairo, Egypt, and Shanghai, China. And the entire peninsula lies hundreds of miles nearer than Rome to the equator. Viewed from the air, with its broken coastline and innumerable lakes, canals, and rivers, Florida looks like a frayed and perforated green mat spread upon a blue sea. Inland, the mat develops a ridge composed of round-shouldered limestone hills that tapers off from the north into the prairie region above Lake Okeechobee. Below the lake appear the Everglades, a half-submerged waste of sawgrass studded with cypress hammocks and oasis-like palm islands. In profile, as seen from offshore, the land of Florida becomes a soft pastel line separating sky and water. The Atlantic coast sweeps in an even curve to the end of the peninsula, where it breaks into segments. From there, the Florida Keys extend like coral stepping stones into southern waters. The Gulf Coast, deeply marked with bays and bordered with rank growths of hardwood, makes a great arching swing southward and finally crumbles into the 10,000 islands, a labyrinth of uncharted waterways. Geographically, the state can be divided into four sections. The East Coast Strip, bordering the, A the Atlantic from Ferdinandina to Key West, the Lake or Central Ridge District, the West Coast area, which Tampa is the hub, and the Panhandle of West Florida, which includes the rolling country along the North Shore of the Gulf. The East Coast is protected from the open sea by a ribbon of sandbars and islands on which have been built many leading tourist towns, notably Ormond, Daytona Beach, Palm Beach, and Miami Beach. Although the business districts are often on the mainland, the resort sections lie beyond saltwater lagoons on the barrier beaches. Inland from the coast, a wedge-shaped area of pine and palmetto flatwoods reaches from the Georgia border on the north to a point between the Everglades and the Atlantic on the southern tip of the peninsula. The Everglades. Until 1842, an unexplored, mysterious region known only to the Seminole, who found sanctuary there from invading whites, forms a vast area much of which is underwater throughout the year and nearly all during the rainy summer season.
the big cypress swamp. That portion of the Everglades nearest the west coast has considerably less surface water than the eastern half of the region. Its northern section, known as the Okalakuchee Slough, has been used as pasture for open-range cattle since the war between the states. The Tamiami Trail, running east and west, bisects the Everglades and skirts the southern part of the Big Cypress Swamp. Fringing the lower Gulf Coast are the 10,000 Islands, a group of mangrove-covered islets divided and often submerged by swift-running tidal channels. No railways or highways link these keys, and because of their inaccessibility, they have been the refuge of many picaresque characters since the late 1880s. North of the 10,000 Islands, the coast is blanketed with pine forests and hardwood hammocks. Several drowned river valleys and the absence of reefs, except along its upper reaches, indicate that this section is probably older than the east coast. The topography of much of northwest Florida has little to differentiate it from the red clay hills of Georgia and Alabama across the border. But along the Gulf Coast, great swamps cut deep into the land, and tourist resorts of this section are built on bayfronts or on islands overlooking the Gulf. The lake, or central ridge section, is rolling land pitted with lakes and springs. La Hoop Hill, four miles south of Dade City, with an elevation of 330 feet, is one of the highest measured points in the state. The estimated 30,000 lakes scattered throughout Florida range in depth from 2 to 27 feet, and in size from ponds of a few acres extent to Lake Okeechobee, with an area of 717 square miles, the second largest body of fresh water lying wholly within the United States. Free-running artesian wells are found chiefly along the coast and in central Florida, but in the Lake District, the water supply is obtained by pumping. North of Lake Okeechobee, the Kissimmee Prairies, covered with grass and patches of palmetto, and interspersed with scattered hammocks, represent the state's largest cattle ranges. The major part of Florida's shallow surface soil is underlaid by a deep limestone foundation. Sinks or potholes, varying size from one to hundreds of acres, occur where the crust is broken. The huge Florida springs, the lakes, and many of the surface streams also result from breaks in the limestone. Underground watercourses often cause the Earth's surface to cave in, exposing streams such as the one at Falma Springs, the Santa Fe and Alapaha Rivers, and Bear Creek, which disappear only to reappear miles beyond. The disappearance of lakes is also a familiar occurrence. One explanation of this phenomenon is that logs, stumps of trees, and other refuse clog openings in the limestone bottom of lakes. In time, the debris rots and the water escapes into subterranean channels, but suction from escaping water draws other floating refuse and sediment to plug the hole again and allow the lakes to refill. 
Lake Iamonia, north of Tallahassee, has gone through this process several times within the past century. Lake Neff, in Hernando County, has disappeared and returned three times since 1917. Florida's 27 major springs flow from about 14,000 to 800 million gallons per day. Silver Springs, southeast of Ocala, Rainbow Springs near Dinellon, and Itchitoctee Springs, south of Lake City, in order named, are the largest. Wakula Spring has the largest volume from a singular, single fissure in the earth. Some rivers, the Sewanee, the Withlacoochee, and the St. John's, rise in swampy ground and are later swelled by the flow from springs. Rivers west of the Sewanee have their sources in the hills of Georgia and Alabama and become deeper after receiving the inflow from West Florida Springs. Among these, the Apalachicola, Escambia, and Choctawatachi rivers were important trade routes before the development of highways and railroads connecting the antebellum plantations of South Georgia and Florida with the Gulf of Mexico. The largest and most important river in the state, the St. John's, flows northward, parallel to the East Coast, and empties into the Atlantic Ocean just east of Jacksonville. Dredging has opened the river to navigation by ocean liners as far as Jacksonville, a distance of 26 miles. But since 1841, small steamers have been plying the river as far south as Sanford, 200 miles from the sea. Projecting into subtropical water, the Florida Peninsula enjoys a mild atmospheric drift from the Atlantic to the Gulf, and its climate, in consequence, is unusually pleasant and uniform. Below freezing temperatures are rare, and snowfall is a subject for historians. Tempers in January, the coldest month, average about 58 degrees Fahrenheit, and in the warmest months, July August, about 81 Fahrenheit. The average for the year is 69. In central and south Florida, the average extreme range lies between 90 as a high and 43, while in north Florida, the mercury sometimes drops below 32 degrees for short periods. In summer, the salt waters of Florida become lukewarm, and in winter, their temperature is about the same as that of the North Atlantic in summer. But atmospheric warmth above Florida waters in the winter months is, of course, less than that above northern waters in the summer. And at times, winter sunbathing in Florida beaches is a somewhat chilly pastime. Evaporation from thousands of lakes and the encircling waters contributes to an annual average rainfall of 58 inches. Much of this precipitation occurs from April to November, usually when it was most needed to ensure good crops and lower summer temperatures. The peninsula has a daily average of sunshine in excess of six hours a day. The warm Gulf Stream curves around the peninsula's southern tip and flows north along the Atlantic coast. This factor, however, is not as important to Florida's climate as once was believed. Geographers explain that the general marine influence and latitudinal position of the state would assure mild temperatures, apart from the proximity of the Gulf Stream. For short intervals each winter, cold waves invade the state, bringing frost, delaying maturity of crops, 
and sometimes damaging fruit trees. The winds bearing this cold come overland from the northwest and are not tempered by the Gulf Stream. Florida and other South, South Atlantic states lie in the general path of tropical hurricanes, arising mostly in the Caribbean Sea in the fall of the year. But many of these storms blow themselves out before reaching land, or they come ashore with their destructive forces greatly spent. For the most part, they describe a clockwise arc into the Gulf or, or up the Atlantic coast, although sometimes they reverse themselves. These atmospheric disturbances, caused by wind rushing towards a low-pressure area, take the form of a huge donut with high wind revolving around a calm center or core. Because of this formation, the storm passes through three stages at any given spot in its path. First, a furious gale in one direction, then a dead calm during the passage of the core, and finally, a wind equal in velocity to the first, but in the opposite direction. It is during this period of calm that inhabitants unfamiliar with the structure of the storm often leave their shelters and are caught in the last stage. Buildings weakened by strain during the first wind are frequently wrecked by the second blast. Torrential rains usually accompany a hurricane, and the water blown into unroofed buildings accounts for much property damage. Loss of life in the past has been chiefly because of poor housing and unpreparedness. One storm struck in the Everglades before Lake Okeechobee was diked, forcing that body of water over a wide territory to the south, where many laborers housed in flimsy shacks were drowned. Government weather stations now determine the approximate path of all disturbances, and newspapers and radios give ample warning. Though the revolving wind may exceed 100 miles an hour in velocity, the forward movement of a hurricane seldom exceeds 20 miles, and this leaves plenty of time for those in danger to board up buildings and vacate the territory. <clears throat> so thank you very much for attending this part three of the Guide to the Southernmost State. Today we've covered natural settings and conservation, as well as a visitor's second trip to the state, as described in 1929. Next, we will delve into geology and paleontology in our next section. So thank you very much for listening in to our podcast Sunshine Republic podcast, and we look forward to seeing you on a future episode. Thank you very much.